We're in the middle of a series right now that uh, we're calling the Passions of Grace, and we're, we're doing this series just to kind of talk through some of the uniquenesses that is Grace Church. Uh, we do this every 24 months, every uh, 18 to 24 months or so, because, um, because Grace grows so fast. And so we're grateful for that, excited about that, but we always try to take time and make sure that we're up to speed with each other, that uh, we, we know kind of who we are and where we are, we know what we're about. And it's a great reminder for those of us who, uh, who've been here a while, kind of go back to our roots a little bit, those foundational things. And for those of us who are new, it's, it's a clarifier. It'll kind of make grace make more and more sense to you as, um, as we continue to move forward. So we've been talking about this. Um, and, uh, and I love doing it, and I'm excited for you to hear it and hopefully be a part of it. I, I use this illustration 101. If, you've never been, if you haven't been to 101 yet and you're new to Grace, try to get to 101. Uh, uh, the next one will come up here in September, so just keep your eye out for that. But in 101, we use this illustration. I describe Grace this way. I say Grace is like a, think of a river, a river that's kind of flowing, and it's a river of vision. And our hope for you is that you will jump into that river, right? So when you come to Grace, I don't want you to stand on the banks and watch it. Uh, I don't want you to think about how neat it is or how beautiful it is. I want you to be a part of it. I also, and I say, I mean this very lovingly, I I want to assure you, you're not going to alter it. So we kind of know what God has called us to and who he's called us to be, but we would love for you to be a part of it. And so these values and these passions are, are the things that really drive that and move that and kind of make, uh, kind of is the makeup of that river and what that, that is all about. So we talked about, we started talking about this last week, and we said that uh, one of the great passions of Grace Church is uh, to reach those who are spiritually seeking. So we want to help those who are seeking find the Savior that they seek, right? And so we want to make Jesus's path, the path of Jesus, as easy as possible. And we want to make the gospel clear and accessible to everyone who's looking for it. And we say there's ramifications to that. Grace will always change. Grace is uh, 13 and a half years old, and it changes, 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 changes. The gospel of Jesus doesn't change. The Bible doesn't change. That's unchanging. But the language we attach that to is always going to change as the culture around us changes. So that, that's good news and bad news, right? The bad news is, is that if there's something about grace that you really, really love right now, that's probably going to change in the next few years because culture is going to change. We're going to try to keep uh, translating the gospel into that language. The good news is if there's something that you really hate about grace, that's probably going to change in the next few years, right? So it's going to go away. The only constant of grace is Jesus, the Bible, and me, so you're welcome, right? So you get to look at this for years to come. Yeah, amen. So well, we're excited about that. So that, but that, we're always going to be doing that. And we talked about that last week. You can listen to it on the website if you want, that we always want to make the gospel clear and accessible. This week, I want to take us to another one of these values. And these aren't in order of importance, uh, but they're just kind of the list. And so this, this second value I want to talk about is this one. We have as a value, as a passion to intentionally pursue ministry in hard places. We want to do difficult things and go to hard places with the good news of Jesus, and we want to intentionally pursue ministry in hard places. Now, a very fair question would be, why do you have that as a value? 
Like that's that's kind of like a, a decision that you would make or if God brought something difficult into your life, you would decide to like go through it kind of a thing. Why would you make it a value, like a, a, a defining drive of the church to intentionally pursue ministry in hard places? And let's just talk about this for a minute, okay? Um, the longer you're a follower of Jesus and the more established a church is, the longer that you follow Jesus and the more established a church is, you are going to feel a persistent temptation that's always nagging at you. The more established you are in your relationship with God and the more established that we are corporately as a church, we're always going to face a persistent temptation and it's always going to be nagging at us. And the longer you go in your faith and the longer we exist as a church, the louder this temptation becomes and the more tempting it comes to yield to it. And here's the temptation. The more established the church and the more established I am in the faith, the more I am tempted to yield to safety, security, and stability. The longer I go, the older I get in life and the older I get in my faith, the older we get as a church, the temptation to yield to safety, security, and stability becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And we are tempted to set our lives up in a safe, secure, stable fashion, right? And that's a temptation. It's natural. Some of us go there on purpose. A lot of us just kind of drift into it. But it's a temptation that always nags a follower of Jesus Christ and will always nag a church the more it's established to yield to the temptation to go to safety, stability, and security. Now, here's the problem with that temptation. In order to have safety, stability, and security, I have to forfeit something. And what I forfeit spiritually when I yield to safety, stability, and security is I forfeit the necessity to be dependent on God's power, promise, and provision. So I'm going to choose one of those things. I'm either going to live over here a safe, secure, stable life, and I'm going to forfeit God's power, His promise, and provision, or I'm going to forfeit security, safety, and stability, and I'm going to live over here as a person of great faith, and I'm going to be dependent upon God's power, his, his promise, and His provision. And if you look at the normal Christian in North America and the normal church in North America, what you would find is many of us who have yielded to that temptation. What we want from God is safety, security, and stability. It's what we pray for, it's what we ask for, and it's how we order our lives. Now, there's a cost to that. And the cost is that very few Christians believe that God can do supernatural work in them and through them. Very few of us believe that. And very, very few of us would pray for that. God, whatever it would take for you to bring glory and honor and praise to yourself, accomplish that in my life. What we tend to pray for is a safe trip home, blessed food, and a good night's sleep. Very few churches believe that what God did in the Bible, the impossible things that God did in the Bible, God could still do today. Especially if you run in conservative evangelical circles, which is where Grace Church tends to run. We would rationalize that down. In fact, if we talk about power and promise, 
If you're a conservative evangelical, if you were raised that way, you tend to think liberal, charismatic, right? It's tend to where, where your mind goes. And yet it's the tone, it's the truth, and it's the structure of Scripture that God did that stuff all the time. Well, why do we struggle with that? Well, it's this temptation. See, it's a temptation that I want to lean towards safety, stability, and security, but I'm going to do that to the forfeit of power, promise, and God's provision. And we've lost that many times in the church in general. We tend to approach our spiritual faith pragmatically. We tend to approach it defensively. I'm going to really pray that God will help me not to sin, and God will help me not to overspend, and God will help me not to overeat, and oh, I almost cheered for Michigan. Forgive me, Father Fry. Right? So we're going to pray and live defensively. We're going to approach life with caution instead of abandon. Do you know it's actually a biblical principle to live recklessly? Paul calls it being a fool for the gospel. We tend to huddle in fear. The culture might get us. The icky people might come and contaminate us instead of advancing in victory. And we often become more afraid of what we might lose than passionate about what we might gain. And we construct our whole spiritual journey through those lenses. Guys, do you know why your walk with God is stale? Why your prayer life isn't vibrant? Why you don't have a story to tell about God's miracle and God's power and provision and promise? It's because most of us don't live our Christian life in such a way that God is necessary. Most of us, as we follow Jesus, don't really need Jesus to be a part of the story. Well, my greatest prayer is a prayer for safety. God, give me a safe trip home, which is my favorite prayer ever. God, give me a safe trip home, right? My, pray to, my greatest prayer is, is to bless the food. By the way, can we just agree that God has answered that prayer in our culture? Right? We have been blessed by food, right? See? Well, my greatest prayer is a good night's sleep. When I'm not in a position and living in such a way that it's necessary for God to show up. When I've built my faith in Jesus as a religious construct where I do my devotions and I don't smoke and I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't date girls who do, God doesn't need to be in that for it to be accomplished. And so for many of us, the reason that the Bible isn't vibrant and the prayers aren't passionate and my relationship with Jesus isn't, ex isn't exciting anymore is because I don't live in a place where God needs to show up to accomplish anything in my life. I've leaned into the temptation of safety, security, and stability, and I can pretty much construct that on my own and be fine. If I went the other direction, where I was dependent on God's power, God's promise to the church, God's provision for my life, I would see my walk with God just explode with excitement. So that temptation is what we always wrestle with. And that's why we made it a value here at Grace Church. When given the option between what is safe, stable, and secure, or what is nuts, we're always going to go for what's nuts. Because it's over there 
where God is, where God has to work, where you get the great stories of faith, where you come alive because you're attempting something so great that if God doesn't empower it, it's going to crash and burn. And as an individual follower of Jesus Christ, that is an element that should be woven into my life. And as corporately as a church, church is the sum total of its individual parts. So corporately as a church, it's a driver, a driving value of who we are. The Bible would teach us that this is the way that we're supposed to live. This is actually the natural way that the people of God would, would work. We would think in these terms. We would filter things through these terms. We would evaluate decisions in these terms. Things that would look foolish to the world around us would make all the sense in the world to, God, to the people of God. Because we would claim or lock on to the promise when Jesus said, all power and authority is given unto you. We would look and say, well, that means that all power and authority is given unto me. If I go before you, who can stand against you? We would look and say, well, who's going to stand against us then? See, if, if Jesus says, I defeated death and sin on the cross, and so what, what, what's the worst thing that could happen to you, that you go to be with me? We would look and say, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to us then? There's no downside to that. And we would, that would make sense to the people of God if we believe that that's true of the God that we worship and follow. Let me show you something cool. Grab your Bibles, open them up to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. It's in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 549 in those Bibles. And if you have a smartphone or an iPad, we use the version app. You can open that up or download it. Hit live. And that's our zip code there. Jeremiah chapter 32 is a hilarious part of the Bible. God is speaking through this guy named Jeremiah. He's the prophet at the time. And this is the way that God would talk to his people at this point in history is through the prophets. And Jeremiah is talking to the people of Israel, God's chosen people. And he's telling them, kind of framing for them the experiences that they're encountering right now. And the experiences aren't real positive. Right now, at this point in history, the people of Israel are being conquered by these other people called the Babylonians. In fact, you'll see here in a minute that as Jeremiah is, is writing this and praying this, the siege ramp to the walls of Jerusalem are being built. So it's a very, very bad time. So the, the Israelites are under siege. The Babylonians are coming to get them. God tells Jeremiah, listen, the reason this is happening is because my people have lost faith in me. They don't trust me. They don't follow me. So I'm going to allow them to go through a hard time to renew their passion and their vibrancy with me. Jeremiah tells everybody that it doesn't go well, right? Nobody's real excited to hear that. So the Babylonians are coming. The city's under siege. And in the middle of all this like grand national upheaval, Jeremiah's cousin comes to him and says, hey, I got a field, you want to buy it? It's the craziest thing in the world. All the, the country's going to be split up. People are going to go into captivity. The judgment of God is coming onto his people so that he can bring them back to himself. And, it's, and it will be just like your cousin to do that, right? Your cousin shows up, hey, I got a field, you want to buy a field? <laughs> so he comes and asks Jeremiah if he wants to buy this field. Jeremiah at first is like, you're a diphthong. Like, why would you bring, bring this up right now? And God intervenes and tells Jeremiah to buy this field. 
the weirdest thing. This field, this, this, this would be like my cousin, this field is already occupied by the Babylonians. <laughs> hey, you want to buy a field that the enemy owns already? I'll make you a deal. God tells Jeremiah to buy this field. Jeremiah buys it. God tells Jeremiah, have it recorded. Record the deed. Even in the ancient world, they would do that. You would have a deed to your property. And later on, he tells Jeremiah, the reason that I had you do this is because I'm a God of promise. And in the middle of the most difficult circumstances you can imagine, I am in the midst of that, and I'm going to restore my people to the land that I promised them. And when you come back to this land, this field is going to serve as a symbol. You're kind of anchoring yourself on me. You're believing me for who I am. Jeremiah, in the middle of all this, prays this prayer. And he prays this prayer to God, glorifying God, accepting responsibility for what God's doing, and kind of locking on to the, po- the promise, the power, and the provision of God. Verse 17, chapter 32, Jeremiah, O sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands by bringing the punishment for their parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. Great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to the ways of all mankind. You reward each person according to their conduct as their deeds deserve. You perform signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued them to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have gained the renown that is still yours. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror. You gave them this land that you had sworn to give their ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. You came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do. So you brought all this disaster on them. See how the siege ramps are being built up to take the city? Because of the sword, famine, plague, the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened as you now see. And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy a fill with silver and have the transaction witness. So Jeremiah prays, he praises God, he accepts what God is doing, he understands it, he claims kind of this promise, you have me buy this field because I'm going to return to it and it's going to be ours because it's a sign of your promise. And then what happens is that God answers or God talks to Jeremiah in verse 26. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Look at this, verse 27. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Let me ask you a question. If you're a Christian here today, do you worship that God that Jeremiah was just talking about? Let me give you a hint. Watch the screens. Do we worship that same God? Sure we do. Do we worship the God that made the walls of Jericho fall down? Yeah. Do we worship the God that wiped out Goliath with a rock? Yeah. Do we worship a God that redeemed a nation through a prostitute? 
named Rahab? Yeah. Do we worship a God that fed 5,000 people with some homeschool kids' lunch? Yeah. Do we worship a God that raised himself from the dead? Yeah. The people of Israel are different than the church, but the God that we worship is the same. The power, the wonder, the promise, and the provision of that God is the same. He's the same God that you and I were worship, and it's the same God that has now, in this point of history, called out for himself a church, the people of God, and said to the people of God, I give all power and authority now to you. You advance the kingdom. You go forth in victory. The gates of hell will not stand against your advance upon them. The victory is already done. I am the God of all mankind. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that I am Jesus Christ and that I am Lord. Everybody who criticizes you, everybody who works against you, everybody who downplays what I'm doing, every one of them will bow before me and call me Lord because I am the God of all mankind. Now let me ask you a question, church. Is anything too difficult for me? Now guys, let me encourage you. Don't give the Sunday school answer to that. Because the Sunday school answer, if you grew up in church, you know you're supposed to say, no, nothing's too difficult for God. That's the only way you got your sucker, right? No, I believe. Actually ask yourself that question. Do I actually believe that nothing is too difficult for God? The answer, catch this, guys, listen. The answer to that question will define your life. The answer to that question will define your life. And how we answer that corporately as a church will most certainly define us as a church. Most of us would give a Sunday school answer and say, oh, nothing is too difficult for God. But most followers of Jesus, if their life was examined, would answer that question, yes. There are things that are too difficult for God. My marriage is too difficult for God. There's no way God can bail this out. There's a, my wife is too difficult for God. She's crazy. Probably demon-possessed. Right? My husband is too difficult for God. And because I believe something's too difficult for God, what happens is I take it back. Because this is too difficult for you, God, I'll take it for myself. My future is too difficult for God. See, it's unmapped. It's, un, it's uncharted. I'm not sure. What, I better get control. My finances are too difficult for God. I can't interact with my money like it belongs to God. I, got, it's my, I better plan. I better scrape. I better do. It's too, God, there's no way that that promise is true. And then you extrapolate that out into bigger, our culture is too difficult for God. It's collapsing. Well, maybe, right? We, we fought a cultural war for the last 40 years. And listen, guys, 
we've lost. Is that supposed to spark panic into the hearts of God's people? Or is God the God of all mankind to whom nothing is too difficult? There are dark places in the world. And we would tend to say, yeah, those places are too difficult for God. How's the gospel ever going to go to Iran? How's the gospel ever going to ever going to define Pakistan. Those places are too, we should probably just nuke them. We kind of think that way though, don't we? We should just get, get her over with. Well, wait a minute, what about, the, what about the love of Jesus? Wouldn't the people of God who are given all authority and power and victory and promise that the gates of hell cannot withstand us, wouldn't they, because of who God is, and because we believe that nothing is too difficult for him, wouldn't we approach all those scenarios completely differently? Probably in a way that will be deemed foolish by the world around us. But that's what a people of faith would do. They would buy a field already occupied by an enemy. That would make all the sense of the world to us. Why? Because we would believe that when God said he was going to come back, it would be the field that would wind up being ours anyways. God already owns it. The people of God would think differently. We would act differently. And while we may say in Sunday school that we don't believe anything's too difficult for God, if the evidence of our life was weighed against that question, most of us, many of us, would live in such a way that would say that we don't believe that. The story of the Bible and the story of the true church of Jesus is one in which people of faith purposely choose to go the harder route. People of faith embrace difficulty as joy because they would look and say, in the darkest hours of my life, God can glorify himself the most. People of faith would look and say, what is the strongest stronghold of the devil? Let's go there. They would never run from it. They would run to it. Why? Because they would believe that the victory's already won. How come? Because nothing's too difficult for God. Years ago when we started Grace, we made a decision. I actually remember making this decision. It was around the, the fire pit in my house in Copley. Heidi and I lived there. And we made a decision that was not in a reaction to anyone or anything. We didn't look and say, well, those guys are doing it wrong. We're going to do it right. It wasn't that. It was a decision that caused us, we were looking at the Bible, trying to understand what was, what was a church, what was actually necessary to have a biblical church. What were, what were traditions, what was preferences, what was subculture, and then what was the core of the church? And I remember praying that through and trying to see that in Scripture. And one of the decisions that we made 
was that we were going to live and make decisions in such a way and through a grid that were driven by the fact that we actually believed nothing was too difficult for God. We were going to approach the whole church that way. Let's assume that this is true. And with this assumption, then how would we view any given circumstance in front of us? We made the decision not to be fearful people because you should never lead from a position of fear. We made a decision to be confident and courageous people. That's very different than being cocky people. But just confident, courageous. We made a decision to never be content. We wanted to be impassioned or what the Apostle Paul calls compelled by the love of Christ. The word compelled means I can't help myself. The love of Jesus, I can't, I can't stop myself from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. We made a decision not to be religious, but we wanted to be people of great faith. And we made a decision not to be pacifiers of consumers. We weren't really looking to see what people wanted in a church. We wanted to be leaders of a movement. And I remember praying about that decision. And I remember Heidi and I praying about that decision. And we started to pray a prayer that we still pray today. We have never prayed for a big church. That, that prayer has never come out of my mouth once. What we prayed for was a brave church. We prayed that God would fill a church up with people who had a spine a mile wide. And whether we were looking at the darkest hours of our personal lives or the most difficult challenges in the culture that we exist in, we prayed that God would fill a church up with people who would look at that and say, well, nothing's too difficult for our God. Therefore, this reckless, irrational decision as defined by safety, security, and stability would make all the sense in the world if you defined it through the power, the promise, and the provision of God. And we believe that that's what God had called us to be. Like I said, not in reaction to anybody. We're not trying to prove anybody wrong. We just knew that this is what God had woven into our hearts. We decided to reject mediocrity. We decided to reject fear and caution and the norms of the Christian subculture. And we decided to reject any call to muzzle the passions that God had woven into our hearts. And those calls will come into your life, guys. They'll come a thousand times. You know how many times we've been told that you can't reach a 24-year-old unchurched person? You know how many times we've been told, you, you, if you want to have a church, you've got to have these things in it? You know how many times I've been told I need to wear socks? You gotta, and you're going to get that all the time. See? You know how many times people are going to look at you and say, woo-hoo, woo, you're going to pray about that? 
You're going to do what? You give how much of your money away? You're going you're gonna to count a trial as joy? You're not going to say you got lucky. You're going to say it was part of God's plan. That happened all the time. There's, there's a thousand calls to muzzle what God wants to do in your life. And the people of God do not live that way. They don't accept the rules. I, I don't know who came up with the rule that said that the inner cities were forever lost. I don't know who came, I don't know who decided that. We reject it. I don't know who decided that, that, that churches are irrelevant they better change, you better get liberal with your theology and your doctrine if you want to keep relating to the young people. I don't know who came up with that. We reject it. I, I don't know who said that, that you, you better have a plan. You better have a plan and a strategy and a budget. And if it doesn't fit the plan and the strategy and the budget, then you better not do it. We reject it. In fact, I'll go so far to say is if you can plan it, strategize it, and budget it, you probably haven't dreamed big enough. Churches purposely should engage in things in which the outcome is undetermined. Because when you live like that, by the way, Christians purposely should engage in things in which the outcome is undetermined. Why? Because it puts me in a place of faith. The reason why your faith gets dull and stale and you're hoping Jeff is insightful and funny this weekend is because you're living a life in which no faith is actually required. The reason why churches implode and die on themselves is because they're not living for anything. But when you purposely put yourself in a place, when you on purpose pursue ministry in difficult places, you will live on an edge and you will teeter on that edge. And if God doesn't show up with his power and fulfill his promises and provide his provision, then you will crash and burn. And that edge is an absolute riot to live on. Wouldn't you have loved to see the walls of Jericho come down? I would love, you like, oh, look at that. You know, that'd be so much fun. Wouldn't it have been a blast to see God muzzle the lions in the lion's den? I don't like cats anyways. That would have been like the greatest thing ever, right? Wouldn't it have been hilarious to, to watch all these people be fed or see Lazarus raised from the dead or see the blind see the lame walk? Wouldn't it be incredible to be firsthand witnesses to that? Why does the church remember the supernatural power of God but rarely experience it. God has not changed. His power has not diminished. So what gets altered in that equation? His people don't live by faith. They yield to the temptation. We live safe lives, stable lives. Secure lives, lots of insurance. And we do that to the forfeit 
of the power of God and the participation of the supernatural and the provision of God. Guys, listen. We are a church. That, that means something deeply to Christ. Because he gave his life for it. We are a church. You are a part of the church. Church is a sum total of its individual parts. We are not a not-for-profit. We are not a, a community action organization. We're not a, a volunteer base. We're certainly not a political action arm. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And in our DNA, it must only make sense to be dependent on the power and the promise and the provision of God. Wherever evil is the darkest, Grace Church is going to go. Wherever the gates of hell are the most fortified, Grace Church is going to go. Whatever the most difficult option is, it's the one that we're going to volunteer for. As the building burns down and everybody gets out, we're going to go in. Why? Because we're a church. We are a people of faith. And this is how the people of faith, the people of God, are to live. This is our history. Like everything that you love about grace comes out of this kind of craziness. It's our present operation, right? Big little project. And we, have, we don't know how all that's going to play out fully. We're just confident that's where. And it's going to be our future. And living this way is a blast. It's terrifying. And it's fulfilling. It's exhausting, see? And it's invigorating. We're always broke. But we always have whatever we need to do what God wants us to do. And when we live like that as individuals, I, can, I know why your faith is stale. I know why your prayer life is habitual. I know why the Bible doesn't pop. All that's going to be true when you don't live by faith because you don't need any of that. But you want to pray like a crazy person? Go down into the inner city and start making friends. You will pray. You want to watch the Bible come alive? Make friends with people who don't. Go hang out on a campus where nobody agrees with you. You will study your Bible like a mad person. Because they know more about it than you do, betcha. You want to see God's provision? Start tithing. I can't afford it. Exactly. That's what Micah was saying. <laughs> yeah, it works. And all of a sudden, all that stuff shows up. 
and your faith comes alive and the love of Christ compels you and you will look at people and say, I have to proclaim, I cannot stop myself but proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. I have to go tell people because how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear of one if no one preaches? And how can someone preach unless they're sent? And who's gonna send them? The people of God. Band's gonna come out, and as they settle in, let me just ask you a couple questions. Because when's the last time you, you did something crazy? You mean like college? <laughs> yeah, kinda, maybe without the alcohol, but yeah, kinda. When's the last time you did not pre-plan, did not think through, did not weigh the risk, and you did something crazy for God? Can, can we just agree that the first thing the Holy Spirit prompts us to do is probably the thing he actually wants us to do? And from that point forward, we negotiate him down. You ever had that? You ever see a person in need and the Holy Spirit's like, give them all the money in your wallet. You're like, what if I give him 40 bucks instead? Or 20, he's probably gonna smoke crack with it. See? I have a friend, every time he's prompted by the Holy Spirit, he empties his wallet and gives it to the person. And I picked up that habit, so I never carry more than 10 bucks in my wallet. <laughs> But I love, I love my friend, because he's just nuts. He doesn't think of it. He, he's like, I'm led by the Holy Spirit, and I'm confident of his walk with God. He just doesn't. When's the last time you looked at a person and I'm like, I, I should go share faith, my faith with them? Holy Spirit, yeah. I think I'll pray for him first. See somebody in need, something happens. I should run to them and be by their side. I'll probably just Facebook them. When's the last time Without looking, you jumped in and did something nuts for Jesus. Well, it's immature. Is it? Is it? You sure? Or is it kind of like how we're supposed to live a little bit? And then corporately as a church, guys, listen, if you're newer to grace, you have to know this is our DNA. We, we don't do one project, we do the next one. We don't, we don't have a great adventure, we just have the next adventure. And we live like this, and it's part of what you love. It's where the vibrancy, it's where you can walk in the doors and feel it kind of buzzing. How come? Because we're always on the verge of a panic. <laughs> it's hilarious, right? Drives the financial guys nuts. But it's who, it's who we're called to be. I can't see it different from the scripture. We're a church, the people of God, and we walk by faith, and we live by faith, and we offer our lives and abandon to the call of the gospel. These are the... Uh, the passions of grace.